The following talk was given by Robert Rakusan Ricci at Zen Mountain Monastery. Rakusan is a senior monastic in the Mountains and Rivers Order and the maintenance supervisor at the monastery. We offer our talks free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at cmm.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, <clears throat> noble friends here, and you noble friends where you are. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Rakusan. I'm a monk here at Zen Mountain. And I'm grateful to Shugen Roshi for asking me to offer a talk today. As you may know, um, a talk can be an occasion of some anxiety. What to offer, where to begin, how to choose from among the Buddha's teachings. I don't really know where this talk is uh, going on my life and needs addressing. I hope it will be of use to you. What does it really mean to be really alive? What am I alive to? All of my life, staying alive felt like uh, an imperative to me. It became a full-time job. I want to live. And for a long time, I thought living, capital L, meant um, managing all my engagements, my personal safety and security, all my indulgences, my passions, my attachments, my longings and appetites, my entertainments and distractions, etc., etc. You know, all of me, as I thought me was. I have been CEO, um, president of the board of directors, and custodian of this entire enterprise uh, all my sweet short life. And I have celebrated it uh, with real and committed enthusiasm um, and pervasive and unacknowledged terror. I was and still am to a certain degree creating and pushing this unique idea of my very special and well-armored self forward. I'm staying alive. It's like I'm running ahead of some dark creature in a nightmare. The dark creature is me, myself. I am maintaining and cultivating and projecting this persona, this mental fabrication with all its bluster and bravado and innuendo and verve, its pumped up self-importance its arrogant self-concern and carefully modulated manners, its desperate striving and panic, its custom-groomed and custom-tailored appearance, and perfect haircut. <laughs> I'm over here, staying alive, staying as myself. The song says, whether you're a brother or whether you're a mother, you're staying alive, staying alive. Feel the city breaking and everybody shaking. We're uh, 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 staying alive. 
Um, I know I'm dating myself when I quote these songs. <laughs> but this is the culture that taught me desire and continues to teach me desire. And I want to look at how it continues to have a hold on me and how I can shake it off. My uh, generation, and I think every generation, has grown up with a passion to experience life um, to the fullest measure. What is it in me that wants to persist? What is it that really wants to stay? My conditioning came with models, lots of models. I chose the ones I liked the best. I think of Ernest Hemingway. They say he was a tall, handsome, muscular, broad-shouldered, brown-eyed, rosy-cheeked, square-jawed, soft-voiced young man. His adventurous lifestyle and public image brought him admiration from later generations. In his youth, he was a boxer, a football player, into water polo and track and field events. He learned to hunt fish and camp in the woods and lakes. He was there in World War I, World War II, the Spanish Civil War. He almost died several times from mortar fire and shrapnel wounds. He sustained two cracked discs, a kidney and liver rupture, a dislocated shoulder, and a broken skull. He believed in bullfighting. He hunted grizzly bear in Wyoming, and big game in Africa. He was what was once called a man's man. He was a journalist, a short story writer, and a novelist. He won the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize. He frequently embarked on alcoholic sprees with James Joyce, and often with a cadre of rough fellows wherever he could find them. He had many passionate affairs and was married and divorced four times. And in 1961, he shot himself with a double-barreled shotgun. Is this what it means to be really alive? To live well? I used to think so. I saw it in all the literary figures I wanted to emulate. Ernest Hemingway, James Joyce, Dylan Thomas, George Eliot, Arthur Rimbaud, Virginia Woolf, Leonard Cohen, and innumerable poets, novelists, and others who lived on the wild side. You know what I mean. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the chorus girls say, do, 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 do. We know the tune. We've heard it in um, voracious, wild rock stars, in politicians and celebrities, too. Oh, yeah, the sweet thunder of applause. I want to take you higher. We've heard it in all the forms of addiction. What a desperate tragic, self-centered, and recklessly romantic choice. 
I know that um, these are cheap shots. Everybody can see the fatal attachments here and the tragedy of all those sweet, bad choices. But it's not like all these heroic figures, all these wild lifestyles are up there on a stage and we poor plebes are just singing along here in the cheap seats. We bought those overpriced tickets. We have invested in this light show of loud music and desperate self-centered narrative. For a little while, um, or maybe a long while, we live vicariously on the wild side with our favorite madmen. Then we go outside and swagger a little, and we take the long way home. The lyrics and the music may not be as loud, but we play them over and over in our heads. We wear that same t-shirt of that amazing concert with Santana and the Allman Brothers almost every day. And there is even those favorite gestures and ways of walking that creep in. Sometimes the desperate clinging to staying alive in all its manifestations. Turn it up. It's just an escape or an attempt to escape from pain or loneliness. Maybe it is a way to assert myself as something special and big and alive and wild and more and more and more. Maybe it's just youthful exuberance, but it seems to persist. How can we find a way to affirm the life that's surging up through us and find peace? Do we even really want the peace part? Or is it just about pleasure? One moment of excitement after another. If we are lucky, when we meet the Dharma, we begin to sense an alternative possibility. But even then, and maybe for a long time into our study, we don't really believe it. What? Forever we negotiate with what we know. We negotiate. We go back and forth between the immediate sweetness of that wine from Argentina and the vague intuition that maybe, just maybe, the Buddha was onto something. Well, maybe, but perhaps just a glass or two or three or some other less obvious indulgence or distraction. We always have a choice about what we feed. What will it be? Who will it be? It's not always easy to make the right choice. Pleasure is often cited as the emotional core of our sense of aliveness, our staying alive. Freud famously said, the pleasure principle is the driving force of the id, 
that seeks immediate gratification of all needs, wants, and urges, including hunger, thirst, anger, and sex. Attachment to pleasure, as Freud's driving force, is a rather categorical assertion. But thankfully, the Buddha discovered that it's not the only force moving in us. There is something a little less coarse, a subtle stirring that arises in the heart called bodhicitta, or the aspiration to realize true freedom. Freedom from the exhausting imperative of staying alive, of keeping the show on the road, of keeping up appearances, of moving from rush to rush in the fast lane, from under a tree in India over 2,500 years ago, the Buddha courageously turned around to confront himself and gave voice to the lion's roar that reverberates into and beyond the present day. He said, Stop! He found a way to rest from staying alive and to enter the liberated, uncontrived, unattached, true activity of the natural order of things. The Buddha's teaching about cessation is rather arresting. The term naroda is translated as cessation, extinction, or suppression. It refers to the cessation or renouncing of craving and desire, the attachments to the sensual pleasures we, come, we keep coming back to, renouncing the thrilling and exciting and painful life lived on the wild side and the cycle of samsara. It is the third of the Four Noble Truths, stating that suffering ceases when craving and desire are renounced. But you can't renounce craving and desire just by um, looking at your mirror, in your mirror, and, 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 and looking at yourself and uh, saying, okay, from now on I renounce craving and desire. Try it. It won't work. It's a good start, but it is a huge undertaking that requires assiduous and continuous mindfulness and sometimes prodigious effort. We chant, desires are inexhaustible. I vow to put an end to them. Yeah, inexhaustible. They keep coming on. The only way I can put an end to them is to keep up with them and see them as they arise and let them go. It's an ongoing process. Desires are inexhaustible. I must be inexhaustible too in letting them go. That they actually are inexhaustible was rather disturbing to me for a long time. 
I thought I must be a really wretched human being to have all these desires all the time keep coming up. But then I realized they're not mine. They're not me. They are just karmic propensities that keep boiling up. Everything depends on how I now react to them. Do I let them go or do I feed them? Feeding them um, spins the wheel of samsara and perpetuates the suffering I used to call staying alive. Letting them go is rest. Making that choice is not obvious. The self wants to persist. It wants to stay alive, to indulge. What changes in a person to make them want not wanting? Buddhism teaches that attachment to sensual enjoyment and desire in general and sexual pleasure in particular are hindrances to enlightenment. But we have to remember that it's attachment that is the problem. There's nothing inherently bad or evil about pleasure or sensual enjoyment. Training, like the training we do here, is accomplished through meditation practice and learning to notice our feelings and discern what has caused them. The untrained mind is so busy reacting that it usually has little understanding of why those feelings exist. Sitting daily, like we do here, trains us to be aware of what is happening within our minds and bodies. We see it. When we are aware of this, we can discern what causes our reactions. We can observe directly the suffering that comes with attachment to worldly pleasures. And we gradually learn to hold them lightly, just like a butterfly. So over the last century or so, I have been conditioned as an alpha male to dismiss feeling in myself and in others as irrelevant, trivial, and unimportant. Um, But with the help of my therapist, my teachers, and my sangha, I have learned to recognize feelings as they arise and dissipate, to locate them in my body, and to appreciate that they often motivate behavior. When I don't pay attention to them, when I am not mindful of my feeling states, I can cause and have caused harm to others and to myself. Learning to be more and more attentive to my feelings slows things down for me and has created a kind of mindful space in my experience in which I have a chance. I can make more careful and conscious choices and avoid causing harm. 
This is not to mention the fact that consciously entering these realms of feeling, as with consciously entering any realm, is such a rich an expansion of my life and experience. Uh, it is actually wonderful to allow myself to really feel things, even difficult or painful things. To the extent that I am mindful, I am more alive to all the sweet and bitter subtleties of pleasure and pain that move through me. Before entering here, and before entering training here, I remember repairing a roof in Lexington on a very cold day in the winter. We had to climb ladders and remove snow off the roof just to access the shingles. It was windy, and it felt like five below. It was quite an ordeal. Our faces were red, and our eyes were tearing in the wind. But we were alive. In the Maha Sakaka Sutra, we see the Buddha prior to his enlightenment, when he was still unable to give up the desire for sensual pleasure completely. But he remembered a particular pleasure of a different kind that convinced him to find the middle path. This was when he was a child sitting in the shade of a rose apple tree while his father was away on business. The boy was at peace and secluded from unwholesome states. Then he slipped slipped into a profound meditation. It is said he entered and abided in the first yana. The yanas are taught as states of deep mental and meditative concentration and absorption, which provide access and entry into true enlightenment. The young Buddha-to-be experienced a wonderful bliss that resulted from his deep concentration. Looking back on this memory, he realized that here was a pleasure that had nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. In the teaching that he offered as a realized Buddha, he said, Yana is called the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, the pleasure of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, that it should be, should not be feared. This is an uncommon kind of pleasure. It is not the so-called pleasure and concomitant suffering of staying alive I had become addicted to. It is resting in the profound natural order of things as they are. It is Zazen. Turns out I don't need to produce a self promote a self, maintain a self, feed a self all these pleasures, pump it up and perform it with all, these, with all this desperate anxiety. 
I can rest and learn the pleasures of renunciation, seclusion, peace, and enlightenment. All those other pleasures and diversions cannot compare. Find it. It's right here, right now for all of us. We can share it. We can offer it to ourselves and anyone else still lost in staying alive. Taste it. Feel it. Live it. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.